turning this evening to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1 and verse 15. The book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120 men and brethren. This scripture must needs have been fulfilled. And our subject is the necessity of the local church. Well, we've completed our studies in the book of Ezra and before going on to Nehemiah, uh, I felt there's been a number of questions uh, on this subject that we'd have a single study on the local church. And uh, in uh, answering one or two questions, I've been surprised at the length of time that has passed since we were studying church passages. So it may very well be that friends would appreciate an individual study on this subject this evening. And I'm going to begin by going through a few scriptures in the book of Acts, just briefly, and then we shall go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and then First Timothy to round up some of the facts that we're taught about the design of the New Testament individual congregation, individual church. And I start here in Acts 1 and verse 15. And this is the way in which we trace some of the information from which we build up the picture of the early church and how it was commanded to be and designed by the Lord and uh, the things that apply for all ages. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, but it's this, uh, 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 these are words here in brackets that we're interested in, the number of names together were about 120. The number of names. And that's significant. Before I go any further, just let me read the first few verses of the chapter because they throw light. Uh, and here they are, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he showed himself, and so on. And down to verse 4, and being assembled together with them, with the other disciples and Christ, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. And here they are in verse 15 in that room waiting for the time when the Spirit would be poured out. And there were a number of them, a number of names, interestingly. Some modern translations uh, uh, interpret it a little and say the number of people. Some say the number of men. But it is the number of names. And that's significant because these were people who could all be identified and they were identified together. It was the fledgling embryonic church. 
And they stood together, waiting for the gift of the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the number of names together. It's a very interesting and a very significant phrase. And there were about 120 of them. So we start there. But I go down to chapter 2 and verse 41. We're just collecting the fragments. And here in chapter 2, verse 41, we read, uh, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them, unto them is in italic, which isn't in the original, but it's implied, the same day there were added about 3,000 souls, added to the number of the names, the apostles and the number of people identified who stood together in a relationship. And now, with 3,000 or so added, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in learning, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many signs, wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And then we go to, on to uh, uh, these, these, this is the church we're going to be reading about. And in chapter 5 and verse 11, just fragments, fear came upon all the church, ecclesia, and upon as many as heard these things. The called out people, some think it simply means called together for the purposes of assembly. But the called out element is important. Called out from among the Jewish church. Called out from the world. A distinctive group of people. Now they'll be constantly called in the book of Acts, the church, the called out or gathered ones. And great fear came upon all the church. This is following the death of Ananias and Sapphira. So people were made solemn and careful and very respectful. Their gathering together was something that was instituted by God and they had to uh, live accordingly. And if we go on from verse 13 of chapter 2, verse 13 of chapter 5, and of the rest, the outsiders, no man, durst no man join himself to them. The people were hesitant and afraid to join them. There were certain qualifications required. These were people who were followers of Christ. These were people who manifested certain characteristics of salvation. These were people you couldn't easily join unless you had the same profession of faith and the same experience. And with the signs and wonders about in those early days, uh, many people, well, who might be very forward, or oh, I'd like to join this new society, this new grouping, they were afraid to do anything lightly because they could see that these are people who were God's people and could do these, their apostles could do these wonderful things. Verse 14, and believers were the more 
added to the church through the word multitudes both of men and women the church comes in again and repeatedly let's just go on to chapter 9 and then we'll join the fragments together and in verse 26 and when Saul with his reputation as a persecutor a leader among the Jews when Saul was come to Jerusalem he assayed he attempted to join himself to the disciples of course he'd been saved but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple he tried to join them and that's interesting because the word join there in verse 26 he tried to join himself is the uh, verb to glue he tried to attach himself closely this was a company of people that you needed if you were saved to join to formally belong to to be solidly connected to and attached to and Saul wanted to be in that group he wanted to belong he wanted to be a member but they wouldn't take him at first they were afraid of him because of his persecuting past and they wanted to be sure but verse 27 Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that's exactly what we follow today we have to uh, find out someone's testimony if they want to join the church should be so in any church and then that person's testimony and application is presented to the members and we follow the same things all these fragments you will see in the infant church in the New Testament and you see that with that famous glue verb which is repeated several times in different forms in the book of Acts then just leap on to chapter 11 and verse 22 and uh, we see something further then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem that's an interesting statement the church which was in Jerusalem so the company of disciples which was very large in Jerusalem there had been 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost followed soon afterwards by another 5,000 and many others some were beginning to disperse but this was a, a large church but it's the church which was in Jerusalem and now the book of Acts will continue to speak like this as though the church in any given town or city is an entirely self-contained church it is the church it's not part of the church of an entire region it is the church at Jerusalem and the text continues in that way and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God the converts at Antioch was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord 
And uh, verse 24, much people were added to the church. And in verse 25, Paul goes off to Tarsus to seek Saul, to help him pastor and that group and to continue to evangelize there. And verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. It came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So there's the church at Jerusalem, there's the church at Antioch, and we're gathering up these fragments. And then in chapter 14 and verse 20, and uh, how be it, as the disciples stood about him, this is Paul, who's been injured, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained or appointed them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So now you're picking up the appointment of elders. It says in our version, King James Version, when they had ordained the elders. That's an interesting word too. The Greek is that they stretched the hand. And uh, down the years, there were those who have seen in that stretching of the hand some kind of act of ordaining. And there are others who have seen in the stretching of the hand exactly what was done in the Greek assemblies when the people democratically voted. So it could be either way. When the people who the apostle had nominated had been chosen or affirmed by the congregation by a show of hands or a stretching of the hand or when they'd been ordained. We won't argue that point right now, but it could be either way. And nonconformists historically have generally seen this as a stretching of the hand, a vote, whereas Anglicans have seen it as an ordination. But I'm just going to pass over that for the moment. But uh, we see the appointment of elders. Elders, where did they come from? Well, they came from the order among Jews and the synagogue worship and so on. The Jews had elders or rulers of the synagogue in every place. And uh, the method of government of the synagogues in the Old Testament era seems to have been carried right over into the New Testament era in some respects. So when it came to the leadership of the church community in any place, you see this uh, Jewish custom continued in this instance in the New Testament of elders. But it gets a little more complex than that, as we shall see in a few moments. Just on to chapter 20, and then we'll be shortly going to Ephesians 4. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. 
It's Paul taking his leave of the elders from Ephesus and from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they would come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And he speaks of how he kept back nothing and taught from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. Now he goes to Jerusalem, he tells them, in verse 22, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. So he speaks to them, and he tells them here in verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. What an interesting term. Overwatchers, overseers, the episcopate word, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Those are these elders. They're the elders of the church, and their function is to oversee, to look over. Some people go too far, and they translate it superintend. No, overwatchers. They're those in the letter to the Hebrews who watch for your souls. There's more care and responsibility than there is authority in the term. And the apostle mentions it particularly there in verse 28. So now we pass over to Ephesians which I read in our scripture reading, chapter 4, and we collect some more information about the individual church. Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 20, first of all, to prepare the way, or I'll read it from verse 19, this grand statement of Paul, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, we've got apostles, and we've got prophets, but these are temporary offices, and functions that are built upon the foundation of. They belong only to the foundation. They will not be part of the structure which is put on that foundation. They will not be ongoing offices in the church. There are apostles, there are those who are commissioned directly by Christ and the Apostle Paul, who also was commissioned directly by Christ, who appeared to him and appointed him. So there are the apostles, and there are prophets. 
We read about them in the epistles also. Prophets. Because the scripture wasn't complete. So an inspired word is still necessary. And apostles are going to be reminded of all that Christ said and did and guided by the Spirit into all the truth and they will both write or authenticate prophets who have written New Testament books of the Bible. And so the canon of Scripture will be completed. The New Testament revelation will be delivered through the foundation of apostles and prophets. And because there was a foundation, as we were observing on Lord's Day morning, there are no instructions in the pastoral epistles for their ongoing appointments. The elders, yes. The deacons, yes. The preachers, yes. Not the apostles or the prophets, because they belong only to the foundation stage. How can you be sure these prophets are New Testament prophets? Well, Paul mentions them again in the following chapter, in chapter 3 and verse 5. He's speaking about the great uh, uh, mystery of the Gentiles and how they would be brought into the church when Christ came. And he says in verse 5 about this whole matter, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Those foundational offices again, apostles and prophets. And in those two verses, you learn that they were temporary and you learn that they were to do with revelation. The apostles were also very especially to do with uh, authenticating the resurrection of Christ and giving witness to that. And so was the apostle Paul. So those are some passages. And now Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. One of the most remarkable verses in the epistle. Speaking about the church, from whom, from Christ, the whole body, Ah, the church is a body. The metaphor of the body. What's he talking about? The universal church, Christian people all over the world, the church in its grand, all-inclusive sense? No, he's talking about the church at Ephesus. That's how the chapter 4 begins. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you at Ephesus that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And all the material in chapter 4 is addressed to them at Ephesus. They are a fully-fledged church in their own right, the believers together in Ephesus. And they are the people who, in verse 16, fits the metaphor of the body. From Christ, the whole body fitly joined together. This is a very close connection between the members. Fitly joined, jointed together, like close-fitting stones in a beautiful temple structure. Fitly joined together, 
or bones and, and uh, in the body and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. And as you read through these beautiful words, notice, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, in the ideal church, every member is so cooperating in the sanctification and service of that family of God's people that the growth of the church is affected through the whole company as it is in the human body. The body grows together, uniformly, all the parts equally, and the various growing energy and factors is spread through the body, every part cooperating. And that's the ideal church. Not people on the fringe, people in the centre, people who never join, people who do, people who are fully committed to the work of their church and its worship and its sanctification and others who just dabble. The whole church is described in any given place, ideally in this way. Joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth and maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We're just collecting up church information for the present part. Let me go back to a little history. In this country, in the 17th century and the first part of the 18th century, the majority of independents and Baptists, independent and Baptist churches, all did things in much the same way when it came to the structure of churches and their governments. And, uh, well, they, they had certain governing principles, things that marked them out and distinguished them. The first one was the definition of the church. The churches would define themselves as companies of faithful men. Well, that is enormously significant. Of course, faithful men and women, that means. Companies of faithful men and women. Well, you say, I don't see great significance in that. Oh, there is. You see, the Anglicans and the Presbyterians define the church quite differently. They said that a church consists of believers and their children. Now you see the enormous significance of the independents, who later became known as Congregationalists, and Baptists saying that a church, the definition of a church, is a company of faithful people. Full stop. No mention of and their children. Because the children were not automatically members of the church. They would have to, in the course of time, give a profession of faith, even if they did it while very young, and be shown to be the Lord's. 
because the church was defined as a company of redeemed people, saved people, not and their children, irrespective of their age, irrespective of the presence of any profession of faith. Now that's the great difference between the uh, Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Independents and the Baptists. The line is drawn there. Believers and their children, believers. I pray for their children. I long for their children. They witness for their children, but they're not in the church by virtue of being born to Christian people. Now this goes back to Abraham. It goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. The great question is, what do you make of God's covenant with Abraham? How do you understand it? Because God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed. What does that mean? Abraham and his children, according to the flesh. Is that what it means? Or does it mean, as the Apostle Paul tells us it means, in his letter to the Galatians, that the covenant was made with Abraham and his seed, who is Christ. The seed of Abraham, in the singular, is Christ the Lord, the expected Messiah, the promised great descendant, and all who are in him. So how do we define the church today? Just as it was defined in the covenant with Abraham, a Christian, and if you like, his spiritual seed, but not necessarily his literal seed. We pray for that and we hope for that. That is the great division between the churches historically. Now let us assume that the Presbyterian is a 100% Bible believer. Let us assume that a particular Anglican is a 100% Bible believer. Not many of those left in the Anglican church, but there are some. Well then, they're believers and we recognize them, and we fellowship with them as we can, as individuals, and we love them, and we rate them as the Lord's, just the same. But when it comes to our definition of the church, there is this chasm between us. Abraham and his literal seed, a believer and his children. No, Abraham and Christ and all who are in Christ, believers only. That's the difference. Now, the independent and Baptist churches, of course, had the definition, a, a company of faithful men and women. And now you see the significance and how loaded that language really is and how special it is. And the independents and the Baptists believed that such a fellowship of God's people in any given town were self-contained and autonomous as a church. 
They should not be under any other church. God would deal with them. And we'll come to the evidence for that in just a moment, time permitting. They also believed that they and they alone should admit members and exclude members. The power of admission and exclusion was with the members of the church. They couldn't have imposed on them a priest who would decide who was in and who was out. The company of believers would do it. Furthermore, this company of faithful men would choose who would be their office bearers. The motto was the, uh, a government by choice. So they chose their own office bearers and dismissed their own office bearers. Those powers of decision were entirely with the members, the people in the church. All this was gathered out of the kind of evidence that we find in the scripture. They believed in a plurality of leaders. Elders were usually in the 17th and 18th century the pastors, and then there were the deacons. We didn't touch upon the deacons. They started in Acts chapter 6, as you know. So there are elders and there are deacons. When we come to the pastoral epistles, we find that the eldership, the elders, are divided into two kinds. There are those who are ruling elders, so-called, and there are those who are teaching elders, the pastors, the preachers. The government of the church in the 17th and 18th centuries, independent of Baptist churches, was not entirely democratic. The idea of democracy started creeping into the congregational and some of the Baptist churches by the end of the 18th century. It was at first resisted, but it came steadily in. The government of the church isn't entirely democratic. It's a method of government unique to the word of God and to churches. A method of government of its own kind. Sui generis. There's nothing quite like it in the world. And the way in which it works is that there are elders who rule. In what way do they rule? Because the government of the church, strictly speaking, is a monarchy. It is the monarchy of Christ. He is the authority. There is no pope. There is no archbishop. There is no priestly authority. It is the authority of Christ. The task of elders is to try to implement and to apply the rules and the requirements of Christ in his word. So they are said to rule by the word, not by their own intrinsic authority, but by the application of the word of God, proving it to the people. And that's the system of, of government. There are texts in the Bible about a church meeting. If we had time, we'd find a lot of them. In Acts and in the epistles, church meetings. What do they do? 
Well, we look through the evidence and we find they admit members, they exclude members, they choose office bearers, they deal with big matters, matters you might say of policy in modern day language, and changes of direction, and big things, and big expenses. And then you also find the ruling elders' texts. Well, what do they do? Well, they do all the day-to-day operations in the church. And we look in the New Testament to see a division of labour, as it were. Now, some churches, they say, no, it must be totally democratic. Every bar of soap bought must be brought before the church meeting. That's an exaggeration. But it must be democratic entirely. But that's not what we see in the scripture because that sweeps away the eldership role and texts. And then there are others, of course, Church of Rome and so on, who want something akin to priestcraft and uh, clergy authority if they can get it. Well, that isn't there either because that doesn't do justice to the church meeting texts. So the method of church government adopted by the Baptist and independent churches in the 17th and early 18th centuries sought to do justice to both families of text. So there was the division of labour. The big things all had to be brought before the church and meet with the approval of everyone. The day-to-day things were operated by the office bearers. And that's how we see the evidence and how historically it has been worked out. But uh, time is almost up, and I'm going to just turn very briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 3, but I won't do anything in detail. Uh, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. You know... That's a wonderful opening verse to the chapter. If a man desire the office of a bishop, it probably would be better to translate it aspires to, but even that isn't enough. The Greek is if somebody stretches to the office of a bishop. It isn't so much about somebody who isn't an elder, but who would like to be an elder. This is about somebody who's already serving as an elder. And what he should be doing is stretching to accomplish the things which an elder should be doing. Caring for the people. This is a true saying If a man stretches to the office of a bishop, it's actually talking about people who are already there. And they don't say to themselves, I have been nominated and elected to be an elder in my church. How splendid I feel. I can coast along now and and play the part. Oh no, once you're appointed to office, that's the beginning of stretching. 
to accomplish the task, to notice when people stumble, when they need help, to gain and develop and deepen a pastoral mind that cares and is concerned about situations and people and the lost community. What are we doing to visit, to reach, to round up the children? The person is a stretching person. This is a true saying. If a man stretches to the office, the work of an elder, he desireth, and the second desire is a quite different word in the Greek. And it means something like this. He longs for accomplishment, a good work. If a man stretches forward always in his work as an officer, he longs to accomplish something for souls and for the Lord. A bishop then must be blameless. And there are all the qualifications for elders and for deacons. And I pass really on very quickly to um, chapter 5 and verse 17. And I'll just mention it where there was the distinction that I referred to. Let the elders that rule well by the word be counted worthy of double honour which means uh, given every facility and help in their labour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. So there you see there are distinctions in the eldership, and that's where the pastor-teacher of Ephesians comes in at that point. Well, just to close, Revelation chapter 1 and a quick reference to this. And verse 12, first of all, this is the opening chapter of the book of Revelation. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And then there's the description of the Lord, the symbolic description. And you read down in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and so on. And then right to the last verse of the, or the last two verses of the chapter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. There it is. The words of Christ in the final book of Revelation in the Bible. There are here Seven churches. There were literally seven churches addressed in the first chapters of this epistle. But it's also a symbolic number. There are churches. They are 
autonomous, individual, fully-fledged, self-contained churches as individual congregations. And their lampstands surround the Lord. And he is at the centre, dealing directly with each one. That's the independence and autonomy of the local congregation, the individual church of Christ in any place, accountable directly to the Lord, answerable to him, following him. All human denominations, however well-intended they may have been in their design and establishment, are human. Human ingenuity and not conforming to the genius of church order and organisation in the scriptures. So we close with that. Just some data and some information about the local church. That's why every Christian, every born-again Christian, should be wholeheartedly and in a fully committed way in a church of Christ. Inconceivable that you can't be. This is God's unit for blessing in the world. This is God's means. He intends we should all be in church families. We should all be caring for each other. This is the unit for worship, for evangelism, for everything. All over the West, now all over the world, but particularly in the United States, which is a country which abounds with initiative, there are societies and organisations doing Christian work. And people will write to me. I've mentioned this before. And the person is the uh, director or the president or the chief of some society for evangelism or Christian service. And on the top of his letter, it'll have some splendid words like, from the desk of the president. But it isn't the president of the United States. It's the president of the Joe Smith Evangelistic Association or something like that. But really, none of that should be. There are only churches. There's one well-known figure in church history said these words, the Lord Jesus Christ founded one institution, he founded nothing else, the local church, the individual congregation. So all these human inventions, they may be well-intended, and God in his amazing mercy and kindness may even bless them and use them. But they're not the ideal. They're not really the scripture. The church, the local church, is everything.